And turn in your Bibles again to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, verses 1 through 12, especially, however, verses 7 through 9. You, and when I say you, I mean all of us, you are not the Lord of your life. Many think they are, and we live in a time when Not only is the existence of God denied foolishly, so also is his right and his rule, his dominion over us. And you as a Christian as well, you are not the Lord of your life. Jesus is Lord. You and I confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have confessed him unto salvation. We believe upon him unto salvation. This Lord is indeed Jesus Christ, the very one whom the apostles proclaimed in the early days of the church, even at Pentecost, that this one whom the Jews had crucified, even according to the Lord's eternal appointment, this one God has made both Lord and Christ. But what does it mean to say that Jesus Christ is Lord? Well, as I've already indicated to some extent, it means to say that he is Lord of all. That is, he has the right as the creator, along with the Father and the Spirit, he has the right over his creation. He rules over all things. But more specifically, when we say that He is our Lord, when we confess with our mouths that He is Lord and believe in our hearts that He is Lord, we are saying that He is our Lord. He has the right over us. He rules over us. He reigns in us, exercises dominion over us as his redeemed people. The reality is we see in our world all manner of corrupt rule. Yes, there are those who are appointed to rule over us by God according to his providence, But we see corruptions of that. We see it in the world. Sadly, we see it in the church as well. But Christ's rule, Christ's reign is not like this. He is no selfish despot, no selfish, self-serving dictator. At bottom, his rule, his reign 
is true, good, and beautiful. And this is expressed at least in part in question and answer 33 of an Orthodox catechism. Why do we call him our Lord? Because he, redeeming and ransoming both our body and soul from sin, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, and delivering us from all the power of the devil, has set us free to serve him. To say that Jesus Christ is our Lord is to say that he has taken us to himself, delivering us from sin and from Satan, making us his own people whom he defends, preserves, and upholds so that we might live unto him. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say, and to say that he is our Lord is to say that we live because of him, from him, and for him. And we come to this question and answer in the midst of the catechism's exposition of our deliverance, of our redemption, what that means according to the scriptures. And more specifically, in the context of the catechism's exposition of the Apostles' Creed, that is, the faith of God's people. And we've already come to understand something of what it means for us to believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. We've focused more recently upon the names and the titles and the dignities that are ascribed to the Son of God. The Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. We say we believe in Jesus, that is, the Savior. We say that we believe in Jesus Christ, that is, the only mediator between God and man, prophet, priest, and king. We say we believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father. The one who is from all eternity the Father's natural and eternal Son. True God of true God. Light of light. Now we come to understand, seek to understand what it means to say that this Jesus Christ, this only begotten Son of the Father, is our Lord. And it means, even as we might have already suggested, even said, it means simply that we belong to Christ. We are His. We, yes, confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that He is our Lord. But we also acknowledge, as the Scriptures teach, even as Paul teaches here in Romans chapter 14, 
that we live and we die unto Him, the Lord. And we live and we die unto Him, the Lord, because we are the Lord's. Christ died and rose again to be our Lord. And so, take us for His own. And so, in virtue of His living Excuse me, in virtue of his dying for us and living for us, we are his, his possession. And he rules over us in life and in death, both in body and in soul. The apostle makes these statements even in the context of teaching us about the Christian life, teaching us about life together in the context of the church of Jesus Christ, and more immediately in the context regarding Christian liberty. And Christian liberty is sadly often understood as a kind of freedom to do whatsoever we want. But that's not what Paul teaches here. Paul teaches us that we are free to live and to die As the Lord's, the one who rules over our lives, the one who has dominion even over our conscience, is the Lord, Jesus Christ. And we have the liberty to live under his gracious and merciful dominion precisely because... We belong to Him. We are His. Christian liberty then is not self-centered, self-governed, but Christian liberty is Christ-centered, Christ-governed. We are says Paul, the Lord's. Now as we think together out of this text and what the scriptures teach elsewhere of what it means to call Jesus our Lord, we need to notice several things together. First of all, notice that Jesus Christ is our Lord in virtue of redemption. Paul says here, we are the Lord's. We belong to Him. And we belong to Him precisely because Christ died and lived again. That He might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Our life, even our death, is under this particular Lord because by His work, by His dying upon the cross and His rising again from the dead, Christ has taken us as His people. He has redeemed us, as Peter says, not with silver or with gold, but He has redeemed us by His precious 
blood. Now as we think of this reality that Christ is Lord in virtue of redemption, in virtue of his work of redemption and in view of his bestowing upon us the benefits of that redemption, we need to make an important distinction or clarification. It is true that Jesus Christ is Lord over all things in virtue of creation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, is, this one God is the creator of all things. And as such, all things are subject to Him. No one in this world is a free agent, a free Lord, despite the denials that exist in our day and age. Indeed, this was part and parcel of Adam's failure in the garden. His sin entailed a rejection of the lordship of God. He believed a false word that portended to set him up As the Lord of all things. In spite of the fact. That the true Lord. God himself. Had given him. As his creature. As his servant. A measure of rule. He was called to exercise dominion. Over. The birds of the air. The beasts of the field. And the like. And yet. He failed. He sinned. He sought a freedom from the Lord himself. This too is our sin for which we are guilty. And this too is our daily pursuit in sin. And yet the reality is that none are free. All are subject to God. He governs, sustains, upholds, and rules over all things. No matter who you are, spiritually considered, you again are not the Lord of your life. You are subject to God. But this is true, we might say, of God's general rule. His general dominion. But there is a special and particular dominion or rule of Jesus Christ with respect to the church. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, makes mention of this, citing Psalm 8, and citing as well Psalm 110, in the context of telling us that Jesus, in virtue of his death and resurrection, has been made Lord over all things, especially the church. Jesus is Lord of his people. He is the Lord of those that he has purchased by his blood. He is the Lord of those that he has redeemed and ransomed from sin and Satan. To 
To this end, Paul says in verse 9, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living, that is, of his church and his churches. He made us to be his people, his subjects, if you will, by dying for us and rising again for us. The work of redemption by which he made himself a propitiation for our sins. The benefits of that work have been applied to us in such a way that we belong to the Lord. You, dear Christian, are not your own, but belong to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20. And you belong to Him. You are His subject, if you will, because He has brought you out of slavery to sin, slavery to Satan, and made you to be His Again, Peter tells us that this redemption is not by silver and gold, but by the shedding of His precious blood. Redeemed. Redeemed from sin. Redeemed from the tyranny of Satan. And so set apart unto the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Standing behind all of this in the New Testament, as we think of redemption, is those types and shadows of the old. And those promises made by the prophets. Israel was redeemed out of her bondage to Egypt by who? The Lord. Even in that preface to the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I am yours and you are mine, so to speak. I am your Lord in a particular way, distinct from all the nations of the earth, because I redeemed you. And the Lord promises to his people, even in the midst of all of their rebellion from him in the Old Testament, even in the midst of exile, he promises to them and says to them, I, the Lord, I, Jehovah, am your Redeemer. He promises to send his servant to redeem from sin and redeem from the tyranny of the devil. And who is this Lord who comes? Who is this Lord 
who lives for his people, who dies for his people, who rises again for his people. It is the Lord himself, Jesus Christ. He delivered us from bondage. He died and lived again. That we might be His. His purchased possession. His, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2, His peculiar, special, not peculiar as in odd, but special possession. A kingdom of priests. A holy nation. Temple of God. Living stones in the temple of God. Those who belong to the Lord by way of redemption. I don't think we often appreciate what it is that we are redeemed from and the awfulness of our sin, the awfulness of our subject to the evil one in virtue of that sin. And yet, this is precisely what we are, as it were, purchased from. But I also think it's true to say that we don't often fully appreciate the fact that our redemption entails not only a purchasing from, a freedom from, but a freedom to, a purchasing to. There is an end. There is a goal. That Christ might be Lord. Not that we make Him Lord. Not that we even come to Him first as Savior and then Lord. But that in virtue of His redeeming work, in virtue of His ransoming us from sin and the grave and the power of the evil one and taking us to Himself, we are thereby His. His possession. His people. His subjects. His servants. So that, whether we live or die, so that even as we live and as we die, we are never not subject to Christ. We are always His. Even unto eternity. And this brings us to the second thing we need to notice, which is something of a corollary related to the fact that Jesus Christ is our Lord in virtue of redemption. But we also need to understand that Jesus Christ is our Lord in virtue of His work of preservation. 
Not only does He deliver us from sin and the power of the evil one, but He also keeps us. That is, He defends us. Part of belonging to Him, part of being His, entails that in life and in death, through life and even through death, we are the Lord's. And the Lord has power. A Lord, rightly considered, exercises His power for the sake of His people. To govern them well. And to defend them from their enemies. As subjects of Christ, we are the beneficiaries of His Lordship. We live in virtue of Him. We live from Him. And we live unto Him. Paul uses that language here throughout the text. Even as we consider our life together in the context of the church and our choices whether to eat all things or eat only herbs, for example, as Paul mentions in verse 2. He comes to verse 4 and says, Who art thou that judgest the servant of another? To his own Lord he standeth or falleth. That is, our lives are lived ultimately before the Lord. And he goes on to say, Yea, he shall be made to stand, for the Lord hath power to make him stand. The Lord has power. And He exercises that power for the sake of making you, dear believer, stand. As you as a Christian live your life, even exercising that liberty which is yours in Christ, it is the Lord who enables you. It is the Lord who by His dominion and power makes you to stand. He preserves you. You and I are special objects of Christ's gracious and merciful rule. As you conduct yourself from day to day, as you live as a Christian, In faith, in the Son of God, who lived and who died and who rose again for you, He, as the resurrected one, in virtue of His own power, causes you to stand. As we live together in the context of the church, And as perhaps even in some of the decisions we make, we bump into one another with differences. Like about what to eat, for example. We realize, and we need to realize, that it is not the imposition of my diet or your diet upon someone else that will cause them to flourish as a Christian. 
It's Christ. It's His sovereign lordship. Now that's not an excuse for any of us to sin, nor is it a denial of the place of the discipline of the church in our lives as her members. But it is to say, you and I stand not in virtue of what we eat or what we drink or how we esteem certain feast days, but we stand by the power of the Lord who not only delivered us, but who defends us, who governs us as his beloved subjects. Christ is Lord in virtue of redemption. Christ is Lord in virtue of preservation. Christ is Lord we need to notice as well. Thirdly, in virtue of his ordination or appointment. We call him our Lord because he came and redeemed us, because he continues to sustain us and preserve us, but because this was his purpose. To this end, Christ died and lived again, verse 9, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Ursinus, in his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, makes this very point. He says that Jesus Christ is Lord in respect to ordination or appointment. I'll quote him at length here. Because the Father ordained the Word, or this person Christ, to this. That He might, through Him, accomplish all things in heaven and on earth. For Christ is our Lord, not only in that He preserves us, having rescued us from the power of the devil and made us the sons of God. But also because the Father has given us to Him. And has constituted him our prince, king, and head. He appointed him heir of all things. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, For to give repentance to Israel. And there Sinus is quoting Hebrews 1 and verse 2. John 17 and verse 6. As well as chapter 6 and verse 37. Ephesians 1, 22. And Acts chapter 5 and verse 31. And he goes on then to say this. Since Christ therefore is our Lord. In a far more excellent manner than others. We are also much more strongly obligated to render obedience to him. For he is our Lord in such a manner that he may do with us what he wills and has an absolute right 
over us, which he, however, uses only for our salvation. For we receive from him more and infinitely greater benefits than from anyone else. The point that Ursinus is making is that Jesus Christ is our Lord, not only in virtue of what it is He came to do, but He is our Lord in virtue of the fact that God from all eternity appointed Him to come and do this very thing. And so when Jesus comes and lives and dies so as to take us out of sin and to Himself to be His subjects, He is fulfilling his Father's gracious, merciful, holy, good will concerning our salvation. Our subjection to Christ, then, is good. It's God's purpose. It's Christ's work. A work applied to us by the Spirit. To say that Jesus Christ is our Lord then is to acknowledge that with respect to our lives presently, we are the object of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one triune God. We are the objects of His special love. And under then Christ's gracious rule. Which ought to convince us. Fourthly then. Of full devotion to our Lord. Devotion to him. The reality is. None of us, Paul says, liveth to himself and none dieth to himself. The end for which we live and die is not ourselves. The goal of our life, the goal of our death is not self-serving, not self-glorifying, but is the glory of the Lord who was appointed for us, who redeemed us, who preserves us. Whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. We belong to Him. We are to live and die to Him. Christ has a blessed and gracious dominion over us. A complete dominion over us which ought to generate from us in mind and in heart and in life, even in death, a devotion to Him. We have been set free to serve not ourselves, but Him according to His word. And this means that in our devotion, 
we confess not only that Christ is Lord, but we confess in our very lives, even in soul and in body, the gracious dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ over us. What is it then to believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord? He is our Redeemer, our Preserver, ordained as such from all eternity. The one to whom we are delivered by his work. And to whom we are devoted. And this confession entails several things. To say I believe in Jesus Christ. The only begotten son of the father. Son of God. Our Lord. It is to believe. That he is. Our Lord. It is to believe that he is Lord over all, but especially of his churches, of us, of our lives. But the reality is, as the scriptures tell us, even the demons believe that God is. Even the demons believe that God or that Jesus is Lord. So there is more to this confession. There is more to believing that Jesus Christ is our Lord. It is not only to believe that He is and to believe what the Scriptures say that He is, but it is to believe from the heart that Jesus Christ is my Lord, your Lord. It is, as Ursinus puts it, to repose upon him, to trust in him, to have every confidence in him, to cast your life and your death upon him and say, he has redeemed me by his precious blood from sin. And from the power and tyranny of the devil. He has redeemed me unto himself. He preserves me. I am the Lord's. I live unto him. And I will die unto him. We say... Jesus is Lord. And we say that he is my Lord. Rosinus says when we therefore say that we believe in our Lord, we believe among other things. Not only that he's creator and has right over all creatures. Not only that he's the redeemer, defender and preserver of the church. Having redeemed it with his blood. 
but he notes this, I believe that the Son of God is also my Lord, that I am one of his subjects, I am redeemed by his blood and continually preserved by him so that I am bound to be grateful to him. You are Jesus Christ's possession. His peculiar, special, precious possession. Purchased by His blood. And you live and you die unto Him in gratitude. With thanksgiving of heart and mind and life. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that eateth, eateth unto the Lord. For He giveth God thanks And he that eateth not unto the Lord, he eateth not and giveth God thanks. The end for which you are redeemed, the end for which you are preserved, the end for which Christ came into this world and lived and died is that you might live and die unto him with thanks to God. With a gratitude of heart to God. That you are not your own. That you are not under sin. That you are not under the tyranny of the evil one. But that you are the Lord's. Jesus Christ's own people. My friends. Not only would I implore you to believe upon Jesus Christ. But I would implore you to believe and rest upon Him as your Lord. As the one who, as it were, holds your life, even your death, in His hands. And does so well. For your salvation. He redeems you. He gives you, or has the power to make you stand. So my friend, live unto him. Die unto him. With thankfulness to God.